Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 11 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 17th of April. And Leon, what have we got on the schedule for this week? Well, we're talking to Andrew Zatlin. Now, he runs a big data firm, Moneyball, in the US, and they look at all sorts of strange and wonderful things. He talks about how certain trends, like escort services, for example, point to trends in the economy. So it's going to be fascinating talking to him. The hooker index seems to work quite well. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And uh, then we have a great interview with uh, RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. He's going to talk to us all about taxing the big corporates, and he's going to also talk to us about the war between uh, Peter Costello and Joe Hockey. <laughs> yeah, and that's warming up by the look of the news on it. That's right, that's right. So anyway, first of all, let's talk to Andrew Zatlin. Tell us, um, how can hooker prices predict the state of the economy? Uh, well, it's not just hooker prices, vice spending in general, uh, but, but hookers, I call it hookernomics, and I'm going to have to trademark that, I think, someday soon. Really, th- this isn't this isn't a, a sudden light bulb going off on the head type of experience. The challenge has been translating into how do we track luxury spending. And you know, everyone knows luxury spending is the canary in the coal mine when you talk about uh, disposable income. Uh, when people feel great, when they, they, they don't not only feel like they've got money in the pocket today, but going forward, and we all tend to spend a little bit more. We, we uh, gift a little bit higher dollars and so on. And the opposite's true, right? When things start to get a little tight, the first things that go are going to be luxury spending. But the problem is one man's luxury item is maybe another person's just ordinary, you know, whatever. How do you track it? That's always been the holy grail. How do we track a luxury spending type of index that cuts across all the socioeconomic uh, and demographic areas we can get to? In the past, one measurement that, that was kicked around it's kind of like a medley of what's going on at Tiffany's and Sotheby's and all these other classic luxury type of spending. But that really is only talking about the upper 1% and whether they feel like spending $100 million on the latest Renoir or whatever. It doesn't go to the real core economy and, and what, you know, am I willing to go off and take my family out to dinner to a nice steakhouse and, you know, go and get, get some really nice bottles of uh, good wine? How do we get there? And so what, what I've done is, you know, and this is something that, that I think, uh, not just me, but a lot of newcomers to the field of economics, we, we've taken a step back and we've said, let's, let's take a fresh perspective. And that fresh perspective means reevaluating how the economy really functions and acknowledging that the Internet has brought us a lot of new data sets that we can now look at and, and you know, assess. Are these going to help inform what's going on? I'm not going to speak to your vices. It's probably smoking a cigar or something, something very nice. Uh, but we all have these little hobbies or places where we, if we had a couple of extra dollars, we would spend just to feel good. What I have found in America, and I can, I can only speak from the American perspective, but I think this is a universal experience considering that these vices tend to go across every country out there. Uh, if you go on the internet, you can find hookers online. Uh, you can find gambling online. So a lot of places where people are going to go to have, have their fun, uh, you can find that. Um, especially Australia, you know, prostitution's legal in Australia. It's legal in Canada, and so being online isn't considered um, something that's that's a challenge to get to. The information's there. The challenge is always, again, what information. It's not like someone is going to raise their hand and, and say, you know, I saw ten clients today and I, I charged this much money, so so have fun with that information. 
so there's kind of a, of a side door triangulating on getting that information. But let me just say, say the following just to sort of contextualize it. We want to get to luxury spending, whatever the definition is. And I think we can all agree that gambling is something that's not limited to the wealthy. It's not limited to the poor. Pot smoking, same thing, cuts across every socioeconomic class, every demographic, prostitution, uh, drinking. These are all things that everyone is indulging in more than they're indulging in, say, drinking Bordeaux wines. So in the U.S., about 100,000 people drink Bordeaux wines, but 17 million people smoke pot. So if you can track, are they going out and partying harder or less hard? Are they going and gambling more or less? Then you're getting a sense of whether they've got extra money in their pocket. And you're talking millions, by the way, millions of data points each month as opposed to maybe a couple hundred, a couple thousand. So you're getting a richer population of information. What I found is is um, I went back about 20 years with this data, and the relationship between this data, and unfortunately it's only a U.S.-centric approach, although I think it can be, it can be easily ported to Australia. It's just, you know, what data sets available in Australia and what's not. But I think the, the, the approach would, would fit. Once you get this information, what I have found in the U.S. economy is it has almost a 90% correlation to the U.S. retail spending. We're a very consumer society. So it makes sense that when we feel flush, uh, we're going to go out and we're going to spend, not just on luxury but on everything else. But the first place where you start to see that expansion is on the fun stuff. And the first place where you see the contraction is going to be on the fun stuff, you know, wants versus needs, right? But 90% correlation is one of those, you know, big, it's hard to get to that point. And so what I've done is I started a year and a half ago to actually predict, I'm a a forecaster of economic data. I started to predict the U.S. retail figures, and I I am and continue to be one of the more accurate forecasters out there. And it's 100% based off of American spending on vices, you know, hookernomics. And what's interesting is, is this something I can explore a little bit more with you, or or do you want to move on to something else? Well, well, uh, I was thinking about the stuff, but please go on. In a nutshell, you know, what makes it so different from other luxury spending and what takes it to that next level is it's a cash-based uh, marketplace in the U.S. Because most of these activities are illegal, you yeah. don't go in with a credit card. Right. Uh, the hooker, the prostitute can't take a credit card, can't get a line of credit. So if things start to slow down, you know, it's kind of like a hotel. When vacancies start to get to that critical level, the first thing a hotel does is they start throwing out promotions, you know, free parking, buffet, you know, stay three nights for the price of two, you know, whatever their, their packages might be. It's the same business model. If the phone isn't ringing enough and um, they, they've got to pay rent, they've got to pay for the car, so you start to see promotions. This is part of that triangulation that I mentioned, how you can observe some of the behaviors, but fundamentally, they respond immediately. In in the U.S., we had this thing we called the sequester, and basically what it was was a forced budget reduction in government spending. And this was back in 2013. You could see immediately the impact in the escort world where they started to show that they were not getting enough phone calls. Clients had disappeared. Now, I'm not saying that that the U.S. politicians in Washington, D.C. are are mongers and, and chasing hookers all the time. What I am saying, though, is you can immediately see in the local economics the immediate impact as economic winds change in real terms. You don't have to wait a month or two. And the cool part of this is I say I can predict retail. I'm doing it three to four months in advance. That's the accuracy, and that's the timeliness of this kind of data. 
And and uh, you you also track, don't you, things like uh, semiconductor orders and uh, things like tablets and stuff like that, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And that makes sense because, in a sense, uh, in the industrial age, we track things like steel and oil, but in the digital age, we track silicon. Exactly. I mean, it, it, take it to the next level. It really is the universal common denominator. Uh, if you're buying something and it doesn't have a semiconductor in it, whatever made it had a semiconductor in it. I mean, these days we think in terms of, you know, let's, let's use Australia, mining equipment. Mining equipment, very automated, very high-tech these days. You don't, you know, a lot of people might not, not realize it, but you've got a lot of flat panel screens and a lot of technology in mining equipment. Well, the cool thing about that is we can use semiconductors in a couple different ways. We can look at it in terms of, well, if, if you're an Asian economy, your economy is very dependent on, on high tech. And so this is a great window into what's going on. So you can take semiconductor data and you can look at it as industrial production type of insight. But I also use it you know, to look at Korea, Taiwan, Japan, Singapore, and look at their stock markets because it's the same thing, except it's a different take on what's happening. And so you can get a measurement of that underlying economic fundamental in advance. Right. If someone's buying their semiconductors today, they're going to use it a couple months from now. Now I've got a couple months lead on things. Semiconductors as this universal common denominator, it, it can be stretched in a lot of different directions. I mentioned mining equipment, for example. You know, there really is only one or two companies. There really are really just one company that sells semiconductors into factory equipment. All right. So if I want to know if China is ordering and expanding their factories, I can just look at this one company, and the advantage is they're kind of building to order, but it takes a few months. So if they come out and they say, hey, we're expecting our sales to kind of dip a little bit, and oh, by the way, China's at the heart of that, oh, I know exactly what that means to to me. I know that China's not really expanding their factory base and so now you can sort of walk down that, that domino effect of who and who, who's in the sites if, if uh, all of a sudden things start to slow down in China. Right? And, and so and, we're starting to see that. And that becomes a great predictor of how the world's second biggest economy is going. It's, yeah, I mean, that's a challenge, right? China, their data is, is uh, not as reliable as uh, people would like. It's really hard. And so some people have, you know, again, talking about alternative data. When we talk alternative data, we don't mean, you know, voodoo, you know, are we, are we reading the pigeon guts, you know, some Babylonian style stuff. We're saying there's a mainstream set of data that can't be relied upon because the way the world operates today is very different from when these data points were created 60, 70 years ago. And we know that we just don't always recognize where. So when we talk about alternative, we're talking about information that still passes that statistical sniff test. You know, go back to my vice index. I'm looking at millions of activities and transactions a month versus hundreds or thousands that traditional mainstream sources do. So when we talk about China, you know, some of the alternative, meaning not quite mainstream data sets, I know some people look at electricity. They look at steel orders, you know, a lot of iron ore shipment from, from Australia, for example. It, there's no magic bullet, but you, you, you kind of want to get all these things. And it creates that, that picture. One thing about semiconductors like any other data set, you got to be careful. You can't just take the number and run with it. You know, there's some nuances. You know, for example, with, with semiconductors, we know that China's ramping out their mobile network leaps and bounds. And so the question is, how much into the core economy is that going? You're, you're, you'll see semiconductor strength. That's great. So you've got to tease out some of these things. And so one of, the, one of my advantages is I, I live in Silicon Valley. I've, I've spent decades here, my career trajectory 
was in high tech in the semiconductor space for a while. And so one of the things I like to bring to the table is by virtue of that experience, I, I, I can really see what data points to leverage and how to leverage them. And I just encourage people, you know, start thinking in terms of semiconductors, not as what's the high tech industry doing, but it's autos. There are a handful of companies that sell into the auto space. So if you want to know what's going on in the auto sector, look at that. And you can get regional. You can get uh, market vertical. Very powerful data. And, again, it's not data that's gone mainstream in terms of the usage. And so you know, I try to get on my soapbox a little bit and preach the splendors of semiconductors. This is a way of making sense of the numbers and having a feeling for what's happening in the real world and knowing where to look to find the data to either support or refute your assumptions. Right. I mean, ultimately, uh, as investors... I think we all would would appreciate the opportunity to look for that divergence or the inflection points. Those are two different things. One is where I might have different information or different interpretation of the information than the market. And you know, cross my fingers, I hope I'm right. You know, we can't always assume the market's right. In fact, I assume the opposite. But then we've got this inflection point, and that's the big picture. I think you know, I, I'm a retail investor, and you know, I put my money into into certain stocks. I put it into indices. But one of the things that I always have in the back of my mind is I want to get in when the getting in is good, and I want to get out when the getting out is good. I recognize I'll never be able to time it right exactly, but I would like to have some of these this data that tells me, you know, ignore what you're hearing in the in the popular press. Ignore what you know the Federal Reserve over here in America, the central bankers are saying. Because they, they tend to get it more wrong than right. Look at the basic information that says the economy is slowing down. I think you know, here we are at this stage. We have to talk in terms of economy slowing down as opposed to accelerating. You know, we've been out of a recovery. You know, we're at the tail end of, of the recover of the uh, cycle. So my eye is thinking, okay, things are slowing down. I want to get out before things slow down and everybody agrees things have slowed down and, and those stock prices are too rich and it's time to get out. With that in mind, I, I've looked at some of the mainstream data that's out there and some alternative data and I've landed on what I feel are, are the good data sets that have traditionally pointed to that. And right now, that, that's where uh, I'm focused. If it's a Cinderella story, I want to leave the ball before midnight, not after midnight. Andrew Zetlin, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating. Thanks a lot for your time. Everyone take care. Happy investing. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, spending in Las Vegas is a fair indicator of what's going on in the United States, and I'm not sure if it worked elsewhere, but I guess we're no purer in Australia than the Americans, so maybe it will work here. Well, it'll be interesting to see if an Australian economist sets up a similar sort of company to look at what are uniquely Australian trends that point to our economic patterns, and that will be fascinating. Indeed, it will. It may be the sort of thing that Nick Gruen would take an interest in. Indeed. Now, let's have a chat to Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, there's a lot of concern about big corporates profit shifting and not paying their share of taxes. What's your view of this? I think this is a complete beat up. It is the most astonishing attack on business that I've actually seen in Australia for a long, long time. It is highlighted that our politicians in Canberra are either being very naive or incredibly cynical in the way they've gone about this. I mean, we, we've seen questions towards business where they've had to have explained to the senators that tax is paid on profit and not on revenue. Um, simple things like that, which have been absolutely astonishing. It, it has been the most outstanding thing I've seen in a long, long time on a problem that we don't really have here in Australia. 
But there is a, seems to be an issue around the world too. I mean, Britain has declared a tax as well, and yes. uh, and that was the Cameron government. So, I mean, th- there are issues right around the world and concerns about it. Around the, the world. There are concerns. There's been concern about this profit shifting since the late 1990s, when the OECD actually announced a. Uh, it's, it's called the uh, base erosion and profit shifting. So BEPS campaign um, where they've been looking at this they've been arguing for a long long time that corporate tax bases are under threat of being erosion the problem is there's no real evidence of this if, if you have a look at the breakdown of corporate taxation it's been remarkably stable over a long long time the revenue received in in many cases has actually increased what has been happening is that corporate tax rates have fallen and a lot of people sort of equate the rate of taxation with being the revenue raised, which is, of course, a, a completely different thing. And corporate taxation is so complex that a lot of people don't quite understand what's going on. And certainly people don't understand how modern businesses have organized themselves through the use of subsidiaries. So we are seeing that uh, a lot of companies are, say, for example, putting their intellectual capital in economies such as Singapore or the Netherlands, as the case may be. But that's not quite the same thing as them not paying tax. They very often don't pay as much tax as governments would like. But that's not quite the same thing as not paying tax that is due. What is driving the politicians? Uh, my argument here has been that our political friends have spent far too much money. Um, in, in Europe, they've been spending far too much money for a long, long time. And so they've been looking for new sources of revenue. And rather than go through the whole argument of saying to the population, look, we actually need to raise taxes, they, they, they're going for arguments along the lines of integrity measures. So we're not really raising taxes. We're just making sure that everybody's paying the right taxes, which is, of course, just code for paying more taxes. So more or less, they would like to spend more money. Um, here in Australia, of course, government spending is out of fashion, but uh, beating up on people who they think are bludgers or, or not paying their fair share is always in fashion. So they've actually managed to turn an in-fashion argument to finance an out-of-fashion kind of behavior. The population don't want government to spend more money. They actually want everybody to pay a fair share. And that sounds plausible, but it actually involves people paying more tax. This would also have implications beyond Apple and Microsoft and Google. I mean, it, it could apply to Australian multinationals like, say, for example, BHP Billiton. Well, the most astonishing thing is that BHP Billiton is the single largest Australian taxpayer in Australia. They, they, they pay billions of dollars over to the federal treasury and they would have to pay more money because uh, last week the the financial review was alleging that they've got a marketing hub in Singapore. So while they are the single largest taxpayer, it turns out that uh, according to the financial review, they are not paying their, their fair share either. And we have the most astonishing situation whereby the top tax executive of BHP Billiton might be charged with contempt of parliament for refusing to give over confidential information to a parliamentary inquiry, as is her right. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that actually pans out. But you you can't plausibly argue that your single largest taxpayer is not paying tax. And for that matter, I mean, companies like Apple, I mean, Apple paid $80 million in tax. I mean, a lot of Australian corporates wouldn't pay that much. No, they wouldn't at all. It's a lot of money, and that's more or less a third of their net profit in Australia. Now, what what people don't seem to understand is that Apple is paying for the goods that they import into Australia. So a a lot of the money that is sort of allegedly tax profit shifted out of Australia to avoid tax is actually paying for the goods and services coming into the country. Now, nobody seriously 
argues that our import bill is tax avoidance. But if, if you follow the logic of what was being said by our parliamentarians last week, that's what they were suggesting is that somehow Apple gets the stuff for free, doesn't have to pay for it, and uh, is avoiding tax by simply paying their own bills. Now, on the other issue of tax, of course, you've got the states now fighting about uh, what's happened with the GST and West Australia says it's not getting what it's owed. And uh, there's talk about secession over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think there's almost always talk about secession over in, in, in West Australia. Uh, uh, just to remind the listeners, um, the the West Australians actually under the constitution have the right to secede if they really want to. And in the, I think it was either the early 1930s or late 1920s, they actually did vote to secede. Um, and everybody just ignored them and it went away. I do have some sympathy for the Western Australians, uh, not as much as they would like, of course. It, it turns out that Western Australians' share of GST revenue has been falling for a long time and has actually been falling faster than it was forecast to fall. So um, if they had had a look at the budget papers four years ago, they're actually getting less money today than what they were told to expect four years ago. So in that sense, yes, I, I have some sympathy for them. Where I don't have much sympathy for them is twofold. First of all, the amount of money that they get given is under a shared agreement that's been in place since the GST was brought in. And as a matter of fact, how money was allocated before the GST was brought in by the Commonwealth Grants Commission. So the formula for how the money is distributed has been in place for for decades. So we all know that. And the other thing, of course, is the Western Australians have been spending their money and not investing it wisely as they should have or giving it back as tax cuts or developing their economy. And so during the good times, they've partied up. And now during the bad times, they want us to pay for their hangovers. So I think before Western Australia brings their begging bowl out east, I think they need to look at their own spending um, and actually cut a lot of their spending before they start asking us for more money. Right, right, right. And, and of course, we had an extraordinary attack today by um, Peter Costello on Joe yes. Hockey for talking about raising taxes, saying – Ideas like uh, the the bank tax and uh, uh, come straight from Labor Party and the Greens. I mean, <laughs> yes, they do. And and uh, well, what I find quite remarkable about this bank tax is that we had a bank tax in Australia, which was which used to be called the bad tax, and it was actually abolished as part of the whole GST framework that came in 15 years ago, and it was a state level tax. So I, I'm not quite sure why the federal government thinks that they can introduce at a federal level a tax which we already abolished has been a bad idea at the state government level. It is a bad idea and shouldn't come in. And I think to to have a, a public sort of rebuke from Costello towards hockey is, is quite astonishing. And well, what's even more astonishing, of course, is what hockey said back to Costello. He said, um, I wish I had the money Peter Costello had. Well, not only does he have the money Peter Costello has, he has more money than Peter Costello ever has. Uh, the revenue from taxation Australia has increased by $80 billion since Peter Costello was treasurer. Unfortunately, spending has increased by $140 billion since uh, Peter Costello was treasurer. And Joe Hockey, if he wants to balance the budget, needs to be looking at that $140 billion a lot harder than he's looking at the $80 billion that revenue has gone up by. So I think the idea that he wishes he had the same money is is absolutely an outrageous comment. Um, and you just got to wonder what he's thinking, where he's at. Maybe he's having a particularly bad morning. I, I just don't understand it. But I, I think the significance is that a former successful liberal treasurer to write such a hard-hitting and such a critical 
uh, analysis of his success uh, is, is quite astonishing in Australian terms. Uh, what does it say? I, I think it, it, it does say that uh, Mr. Hockey certainly can't really have the confidence of his predecessor uh, as a Liberal Treasurer in Peter Costello, and also that a lot of the Liberal base must be looking at this and thinking, gee, what are you guys up to as well? It's uh, to, I mean, obviously there could be strong words in private. I mean, we all understand that. But to write an opinion piece like that in the Herald Sun, which is Australia's biggest tabloid uh, newspaper, is certainly sending a very strong message across the community that Mr. Hockey isn't really doing as well as Peter Costello would have expected or hoped. And so that does not bode well for Joe Hockey in the future. I wouldn't have thought so. I was looking at this morning and thinking, gee, can hockey survive? I mean, it really boils down to how good his budget is. As a matter of fact, the government boils down to how good Mr. Hockey's budget is going to be in a month's time because uh, next year, of course, there's an election and uh, they still haven't recovered from last year's budget effort, and this budget would have to be up there with the best of Peter Costello's budgets for the government to have done well, and I think Costello this morning has kind of suggested he's not expecting to see that at all. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, what do you reckon, Leon? (laughs) Sinclair's always got a very clear view of things, but the Costello um, hockey thing's quite interesting. Absolutely, as is his view about whether we should be going after those big corporates, and he says it's uh, it's just totally wrong. But anyway, we've got a whole morning of news ahead of us too. Okay, um, let's get stuck into it then, because there's a fair amount happening. Yes, Gary. Well, first, the U.S. Treasury reported a budget deficit of $53 billion for March. That's a 43% rise on the March outcome last year. The year-to-date figure now stands at... Four hundred and thirty-nine billion U.S. dollars. So it's getting bigger now. Worrying news out of China: China's economy grew at its slowest pace in six years in the first quarter compared with a year ago. And official data shows the world's second-largest economy grew at seven percent, slowing from seven point three percent previously. And that followed a 14.6% collapse in Chinese export, which was completely unexpected, and a further sign of weakness. And the fallen experts missed expectations by a wide margins. Analysts surveyed by Bloomberg had forecast an 8.2% gain. Imports also fell, declining 2.3% to 868.67 billion one year on year. And the monthly trade surplus plummeted 62.6% to 18.6 billion one. And what's alarming is that China's coal imports fell by nearly half in the first three months of the year as a slowing economy and tougher rules on pollution took their tolls and imports by the world's biggest coal consumer reached 49.07 million tonnes in the first quarter. That's down 42% on the same period a year ago. That's bad news for Queensland. Yes, yes, and it's also pretty bad for China because, I mean, China's economy slumped to annual growth of 7.4% in 2014, which was the weakest result in 24 years. We remember that. And it's now continuing as uh, industrial production, consumer spending and fixed asset investments nosedive. Yeah, and I notice also that the uh, recent reports that the Chinese are starting to buy shares rather than property, which could be, uh, you know, slightly dangerous. You get a bubble in share of the share market. I think so too, yeah. Well, also, we've got a warning from the World Bank 
that the Chinese economic slowdown is going to hit Australia as iron ore prices tumble. The bank noted that Australia's growth pace had deteriorated sharply since the first quarter of 2014 as declining prices for key export commodities depressed mining investment and weakened the Australian dollar. And it predicts that a further slowdown in China, which is Australia's biggest trading partner, would affect Australia and its neighbours. And that would have not only a significant impact on Australia and New Zealand, but would also lead to indirect uh, spillovers on the Pacific Island countries. Mm. It also says that China's growth is going to get worse. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very gloomy about China, and, and that has all sorts of implications uh, away from the economy as well. That's right, that's right. And uh, all these gloomy forecasts coincide with Australian Treasurer Joe Hockey this week warning that deficit could blow out again as he prepares to write off $25 billion more in revenue over the next four years by factoring in the iron ore price, which he says could be as low as $35 a tonne in the May 12 budget. And that's $25 lower than what was said to be a conservative forecast of US $60 contained in December's budget update. Yeah, it has gone up a little bit, though, in the last week or so, but a very just a tiny tad, isn't it? Just a tad. And, uh, I mean, it, it's going to mean there's $6.25 billion less revenue than a year ago, than the year that the government thought it had just five months ago. And with four weeks to go until the 2015 budget, it seems to me that Joe Hockey appears to be making an effort to soften Australians up for a further deterioration in the nation's finances. Yeah, I think that's inevitable. You know, we've lived high on the hog for too long. Yeah, now, uh, he said the project would contain what he said would be a credible path back to surplus, end quote, but he declined to nominate when a surplus could eventuate, and he couldn't guarantee that the deficit, which is forecast in December to be $40.4 billion this year and $31.2 billion next financial year, would not get worse. Yeah, well, he's still got to get revenue, and if the iron ore price continues to to drop, and of course, the you know the miners, Atlas Mining, and then there's a lot of other junior miners are going to drop, uh, just drop out or close down. Well, yeah, well, contractors working on the Atlas Iron's Pilbara Iron Ore projects are facing hundreds of job losses because they're preparing for their crushing transportation catering services to be suspended over the next two weeks after the miner announced plans to shut down. And Atlas said last week that the tumbling iron ore prices, which have dropped uh, down to about $47 a tonne compared to 118 a year ago, had forced it to stop mining and crushing at its Mount Weber project this week, and it would stop mining its Abidos and Wodinga, Wodinga mine by the end of the month by, by, uh, before ceasing exports. And it suspended the services of contractors, which include Cube Logistics, BGC Contracting, Maca Mining and Mineral Resources, subsidiary CSI, and the indefinite suspension is going to force some contractors to make layoffs because there's just limited contracting work available on other mining projects. Yeah, that's right. And uh, meanwhile, Fortescue could be slashing more than 700 jobs across the Pilbara because it's abandoning boom time rosters in its latest bid to cut costs amid soft iron ore prices. In fact, the only sort of optimistic note is being sounded by Gina Reinhardt. She's talking about uh, markets other than China from the Roy Hill uh, project. Yeah, indeed, indeed. But meanwhile, Standard Poor's is warning eight high-profile iron ore producers from across the globe that they're on watch for a ratings downgrade. 
Australian miners BHP Billet and Rio Tinto Fortescue were named alongside Anglo-American CAP Eurasian Resources, Exara Resources and Vale as being in danger of a downgrade. And that coincides with the reports that full-time vacancies in the resources sector have fallen more than 40% over the past year with no signs of a slowdown. And the Mining and Resources Job Index, which is a closely watched barometer of the sector, dropped by 8.2% in March with full-time vacancies off 10.9% in the month. So that's not good. Not good, no. And uh, that's also seeping through the general economy, Gary. The Australian Bureau of Statistics data shows that personal and financial personal and commercial finance fell in February despite record low interest rates. Personal lending commitments fell a seasonally just at zero point two percent to eight point seven five billion in the month. And that compares to an upwardly revised eight point seven six billion in January. And uh, there might be some tentative signs of improvement. The NAB's monthly business survey indicated business confidence in conditions recording slight lifts in March, lifting three points in March and unwinding February's decline. But the point is different industries recorded different results, very much patchwork. Um, there was confidence increasing the mining industry, but from a low base, and the transport and utility sector, but confidence in the retail and manufacturing sectors continued to head south. Mm. And at the same time, ANZ Roy Morgan's weekly consumer confidence index rose rose just 0.1% last week after 2.3% fall the week before. And that suggests consumers might be upbeat about their own finances, but they're worried about the Australian economy and the upcoming federal budgets, making them gloomy. The Westpac Melbourne Institute index showed consumer index sentiment fell by 3.2% in April to 196.2%. That's below 100 points, indicates they're more pessimists than optimists about the economy. And the IMF's latest World Economic Outlook is predicting that unemployment in Australia is going to rise to 6.4% and remain at 6.2% in 2016. Yeah, which is high for us, it is. Well, yeah, particularly because America's now down to about 5.5%. Yeah. Mm. Now, uh, interesting, Gary, there was a Fairfax-Ipsos poll during the week and it showed a growing number of voters said they would support an increase in the rate of GST. More than one in three Australians now support an increase. Wealthy Australians, not surprisingly, are more likely to support a GST hike than those on lower incomes. Coalition voters, not surprisingly, are more likely than Labor or Greens voters to think it's a good idea. Now, the rate of GST is 10%, and uh, the Fairfax Ipsos poll found support for a GST hike among the general population has jumped from 30% to 37% in the last 12 months. That's interesting, because at 10%, uh, Australia's one of the lowest... Um value-add taxes in the world. The UK is at 20%. That's right. But it, look, it does appear that constant talk from Canberra of a need for a balanced budget has had an effect with some voters saying they had not previously not wanted the GST rise but now think it should be done. At the same time, Gary, an interesting uh, argument's broken out, as we discussed with Sinclair, uh, former Treasurer Peter Costello taking a swipe at the Abbott government, describing its pledge for lower, simpler, fairer taxes as some kind of morbid joke. And writing in News Corp, he singled out Treasurer Joe Hockey's proposed new bank tax and Assistant Treasurer Joe Frydenberg's push for revenue from multinationals as ideas from the Australian Greens and Labor. <laughs> well, you got to get an idea somewhere, Leon. You really do. Well, Hockey returned Servant Costello saying he wished he had the tax revenue the former Treasurer had when the Coalition was last in power. But Sinclair actually dealt with that question when we talked to him before. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, and meanwhile, uh, finally, Gary, uh, Tony Abbott has delivered a snub 
to Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull, sidelining him in a series of high-level private meetings with commercial television network bosses. And Turnbull, who's overseas, was not invited to a series of meetings with the head of seven, nine and ten networks. Turnbull had already held meetings with the networks individually through the industry body Free TV. But still, you've got to say, the Minister's exclusion from the meetings to discuss big portfolio matters when changes are ahead is unusual. Absolutely, yeah, and it's it's again Abbott doing things on his own and not communicating with his cabinet members. Well, to me, it's a sign of the growing tensions between Turnbull and Abbott. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, if you look at the polls, you can see why uh, Tony would be worried. That's right, and uh, that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we've got a terrific interview with uh, Drew Banks from presentation software platform Prezi. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, that it should be very, very interesting. Look forward to that. Right. And uh, in the meantime, uh, that's it for us. Uh, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-O-Z, or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.